Welcome to Village Church Online. It's exciting to have you back in our home. We're in your home. We're getting used to this now, I know. Uh, my name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor of the church, and I know that we have many people joining around the country and different states, even in different countries, uh, that are joining us this morning. So I want to say a big hello to all of you and welcome to church. I want to dive right in this morning because we are in for a very big surprise. This next plague that we come to in the, in the story of Exodus and the narrative of what Moses is going through and Pharaoh is going through in real time kind of blows my socks off. And it leaves me with one big question, and that is a question I'd like to pose to you. Here it is. Have you ever wondered why some people seem really thick? Uh, let me say that differently. Have you ever wondered that why people seem like they don't really get it? I, I mean, you have to be some sort of a crazy person to go through all of these plagues, like, Mo like Moses is bringing through God's power into Egypt. Pharaoh is seeing it. He's hearing about it. Moses tells them they're coming. Moses tells them when they're going to stop. Pharaoh begs for mercy. And yet Pharaoh never changes. And it leaves me with a question like, why does he not understand that all he needs to do is respond? It's ludicrous to think that he hasn't responded by now. What does this guy need to see? What does he need to hear to make him change? And not only that, but each plague, I don't know if you've noticed, each plague takes it up a notch in the Exodus story. These 10 plagues are only getting worse. Uh, the Nile was bad. It lasted seven days and it was over. And you had to drink mucky water for a while, walking on lice or maggots. That was a pain. Or frogs in your bowls when you're trying to cook and knead your dough and when you crawl into your bed. That's a little bit gross. But now the livestock have been hit and the economic superiority of Egypt is taken down a notch. Now Egypt is going through such devastation and now their lives are at risk. The boils, for instance, are taking a major toll on their health. And you'd think to yourself, Pharaoh really is pretty thick if he doesn't respond by now. They've lost economic superiority, their food, their health, their clothing, their trading ability. They've lost all of that. And in addition to that, the Israelites are free and clear. So you'd think to yourself that all Pharaoh would need to do is acknowledge God is great greater than the gods of Egypt, and all he would need to do is surrender. But I'm here to tell you the next plague that comes today, this plague of hail, hail falling from the sky, is the worst yet. And I'm also glad to tell you that today you will see Pharaoh repent. Finally, there is a breakthrough. Pharaoh repents and, and he does in some pretty powerful ways. He literally says, I'm sorry. He says, I'm in the wrong. He says, God is in the right. He even says, I have sinned. He says all the right things. And you think to yourself, Pharaoh has turned a corner. We can close the book. We can have a party. The children of Israel are freed and it's over. You might think that I'm making that up. And the only reason you'd think that is because you might have been cheating a little bit reading ahead in the story. Or I kind of let the cat out of the bag too, because this is the seventh out of 10 plagues. There's more to come. But I'm telling you, when you read this, this account of the hail and Pharaoh's reaction, you would be tempted like I am to say, Pharaoh is a changed man. 
In fact, let me read it for you. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses after the hail has come. In verse 27, called for Moses and Aaron. And he said to them, listen to this. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. Me and my people, I and my people are in the wrong. This seems like a huge confession from Pharaoh. In fact, I got to tell you, it sounds a lot better than most of my confessions in my lifetime. I could take some pointers from this, acknowledging I'm wrong, acknowledging God's right. This seems to be a genuine turning point for Pharaoh. But unfortunately, we know that for Egypt and for Pharaoh, this is not the case. This next plague was the worst yet. Now, we might have a tendency to look at this hail storm and think to ourselves, it's just hail. I mean, we just had a hail storm. I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago in our vicinity, if you didn't get this, lucky you, but it rained these golf balls from the sky. They dinged up the car. They dinged up roofs. I mean, you do what you normally do. After the hail storm is over, 10 or 15 minutes, you walk outside, you check the car. You want to make sure that there's no dings in the car. You look at your roof, make sure no shingles have fallen off. And then you call the insurance adjuster. This is what you do in a hailstorm. But can you imagine if a hailstorm lasted for days? Relentless pounding of golf ball-sized hail from the sky that would be a little bit more than we typically attribute to a normal hailstorm. This hailstorm is the most devastating plague yet. All the gods of Egypt are being attacked because they can no longer protect the land of Egypt and everything is being affected. Three things we see in this devastating hail. We are meant to see that this is the worst one yet because of the amount of scripture given to it. This is the longest plague in the Exodus besides uh, up to this point. We'll see the Passover is definitely longer, but up to this point, the hailstorm is given the most biblical text. Another reason we know this is bad is because of the length of the storm. This isn't a 10, 10 or 15 minute storm. This is the damage caused by a lengthy storm. Now we're not told how long it last, lasted. We're only told that it lasted for a period of time, enough for Pharaoh to realize he needed to repent, which brings me to the third thing, and that is this. We know it was a devastating storm because Pharaoh repented. None of the other storms, none of the other plagues, none of the other uh, boils, none of the other plagues ever caused Pharaoh to react this way. Only the hail caused Pharaoh to act this way and caused Pharaoh to say, get this church, I have sinned. Let's jump in verse 14. Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, there's going to be another plague coming. Pharaoh has just hardened his heart again. And in verse 14, it says this, for this time, Pharaoh says, I will send my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand, put, pull, put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. Don't, get, don't miss this. God is saying to Pharaoh, I am giving you moments to turn, moments to repent. All of these plagues had a beginning and they all had an end. And all Pharaoh needed to do was repent, game over. Let the people go, do what God wanted him to do, and we were done. But Pharaoh, every time up to now, kept hardening his heart. And God says to Pharaoh through Moses, listen, by now, 
I could have wiped you out. I could have, I could have ended this a long time ago. I am giving you opportunities to turn. We see this in verse 16. God says, for this purpose, God says, here's why I'm allowing you time to repent. Here's why there's been six up to this point. Here's why there's reprieve in between everyone. For this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power. See that church? So that by my name, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God lets the cat out of the bag here for Pharaoh. God literally says to Pharaoh, listen, buddy, I'm using you. Your rebellious heart is only making me look greater. Every time you choose not to repent and I have to send a greater and more devastating plague, you only demonstrate how powerful I am. I am using your hard heart to declare to everyone that I am far more powerful than you or your people have ever given me credit for. With every rejection of God's command, with every rejection of God's demand, Pharaoh is giving God another opportunity to kill another false idol in Egypt. And after six plagues, God takes Pharaoh by the hand and he walks him behind the curtain and he tells Pharaoh what he has already told Moses and now Pharaoh is about to be let in on the big plan. Pharaoh, you think you are making these decisions on your own. But every time you resist me, you are making me look greater. This is the purpose for all these plagues. So that I may be known in all of Israel, in all of Egypt. Whatever decisions, God says, whatever decisions you think you're making, Pharaoh, I am using all of those decisions for my glory. Now, at this point, you might want to feel sorry for Pharaoh. Like, what do you mean? Pharaoh's like a marionette. He's, he's like a puppet. He's, God is pulling the strings and Pharaoh doesn't have any choice in the matter. But throughout these plagues, church, I want you to be really, really diligent students here. The writer is telling us not one thing, but two things. Throughout these plagues, the writer is giving us information that God's glory is going to be seen through Pharaoh's rebellion, but also that Pharaoh is clearly responsible for his own choices. You can see this in the very next verse. Look at verse 17. God says to Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Is that plain enough for you? The writer wants us to know that God is placing the blame squarely on Pharaoh's shoulders. You are raising yourself up. You are not letting them go. So church, I want to ask you, who is more responsible, God or Pharaoh? Some would like to place the control completely in God's hands. Some would like to place the control completely in Pharaoh's hands. But in reality, church, it's both. It's called this divine human cooperative where Pharaoh is responsible and God is responsible. In reality, both are true. That's why these plagues are carefully written out the way that they are. It says clearly in scripture, Pharaoh hardened his heart or Pharaoh's heart continued to be hard. It says that all the way through these plagues, but it also says God hardened 
Pharaoh's heart. Both are true. In reality, I want you to know, though, that it's not until 6, 8, and 9, these plagues, 6th plague, 8th plague, and the ninth plague, that the writer clearly tells us, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The words are interchangeable all the way through, but it seems like as we get to the last few plagues, God is fostering a hard heart that Pharaoh already has. So we must hold these mysteries in tension. The Trinity, different mysteries of Scripture, this is also one of those things we must hold, that God is king over our hearts, and we are responsible for our own actions. Those two truths work together so that God's will can be done. It's not one side completely or the other side. It's not I do everything and God follows my lead. And it's not God does everything and I have no choice in the matter. The truth is somewhere between those two statements. Neither fully capture the entire truth. It is clear, church, that Pharaoh is still hardening his own heart. After all, and here's the kicker, this is what Pharaoh wanted the most. Pharaoh's heart desired to be in control, desired to be in rebellion against this new God, desired not to obey. And God is allowing Pharaoh's heart to simply move in the same trajectory that it was headed his whole life. Listen, Pharaoh could see what God was doing just like everybody else. Pharaoh could hear what God wanted. Moses was making it very plain to him. But this guy was thick. Not just thick in the head. He was thick in the heart. God is simply giving Pharaoh up to what Pharaoh wanted all along. Listen, this is the pattern of every hard heart. The pattern of a rebellious heart is to is to give itself up to more and more rebellious actions. And even when the truth is so apparent, a rebellious heart that starts down the road, the trajectory of rebellion, has a very difficult time turning around. Paul, the apostle in the book of Romans, tells us a little bit about this. This is applicable to our world today. In Romans, Paul explains to all of us that God's mercy and his grace and his power can be seen in everything that is made. Look in verse 1, or verse 21 of Romans chapter 1. Paul the Apostle writes to the church at Rome, listen, here's how it works. Although people know God, they do not honor him as God, nor do they give thanks to him. But they become futile in their thinking. And look at the next, next phrase, church. And they, their foolish hearts were darkened. The problem occurs in the mind and in the hearts. Therefore, verse 24, this terrible phrase that goes on when God deals with rebellious hearts, God gave them up. Look how many times it says this in Romans 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. You see, God gives us up in our rebellion. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. We choose the trajectory of rebellion against God. We foster a hard heart. 
We neglect all the obvious presences of God in our lives around us. We choose not to give God thanks. Some of us choose to say God doesn't even exist. And when we do that and we foster our hard heart, we continue to make all the bad decisions our hearts direct us to make. Listen, a heart will tell a person he's getting everything he needs. You are being fulfilled when the entire time it is God giving you up to the lusts and the desires and the broken life that you are already pursuing. Pharaoh's heart is on a trajectory. God simply reinforces that trajectory. We can use our hearts one of two ways, church. We can surrender to God and obey him, or we can rebel against him and disobey. Those are the two choices. Jesus himself said you can serve one of two masters. You can serve God or you can serve whatever passion. In his case, he was saying, or you can serve money. Whatever passion your heart tells you will give you fulfillment. Chase that. And before long, it will enslave you. Bottom line is God's glory will be used and seen in both circumstances. Let's go on in the narrative. Verse 18. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. This is this is the plague given so much space in this narrative. Why? Because God is warning them. He's saying ice is going to fall from the sky. This ice will be in such chunks that it will kill you if you're a person and it will kill your animals if they're left out in the field. I want you to see something. God is continuing an evangelism tour here. What person ever attacks another nation and gives them details of what's coming? Only if that person wants that nation to turn. God is providing a way for these Egyptians to preserve life. He's not only saying to Pharaoh, here's what's actually going on, pulling him behind the curtain and showing him all the control board. He's now going to the Egyptians and saying, listen, I'm sending out a, a, a merciful declaration. There's hail coming like you've never seen before. It's going to come against Pharaoh because his heart is hard and I want my people free. This is what I need to happen. And if you don't want to suffer under it, take me by my word and get your people indoors. If you're letting... If you're living life, letting God's word guide you, you'll be saved. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 7, verse 24. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who builds his house on a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be a foolish man building houses on sand. You see, God is telling the Egyptians, here's what's coming. All you have to do is believe me and act on it, and you'll be safe. God warns everyone. He did back in Moses' day, and church, he does today. Some will listen, and some will not. And maybe you're listening to this message today, and you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I... 
I kind of like the religious thing. I, I, I like reading the Bible. I like God. You know, I, I'm kind of, I'm familiar with all of this, but I'm here to tell you that it's more than that. Faith means taking God at his word, acting on what you believe to be true. And so church, if God says it, it it's not just enough to believe it. We've got to act on it. Verse 20. Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh. Did you see that? Not the Israelites. Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of who church? Pharaoh. Hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. Church, God is merciful to those who heed his word. The phrase really is the key. Whoever feared the word of the Lord acted on what he said. They didn't, they didn't pretend they didn't hear it. They didn't ignore the last six plagues. They, they acted like, okay, this God is really powerful. I better do what he says. And they brought their people and their livestock inside. God's people obey God, not because he's going to damage us, not because he's going to get us with a baseball bat, but because we fear God. We fear God to the point where we, we give him the authority to do whatever he wants to do, and we believe he'll do it. We take him at his word. Let me put it even simpler. How do you describe somebody who's decided to follow Jesus? It's easy. They take God at his word. Jesus describes it this way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those who follow Jesus Christ, those who give God that authority in their lives, act on what God says. They take it seriously and they act on it. But church, how do you describe somebody who has not decided to follow Jesus? Simple. They don't take God at his word. They don't believe they're accountable. They don't believe they will ever stand before God. They don't believe there's a day of judgment. They think they're free and clear. You see now why I love this plague so much is because it's so applicable to where we're at today. The devastation did not need to happen. Everyone could have been saved. Everyone. Egyptians, everyone. Pharaoh, everyone. All they had to do was take God at his word. People today, same way. If you're one of those who does not believe God, you will not take him at his word. You are like the owners of the livestock and the slaves, leaving your people and your cows and your sheep and your goats all outside because you don't think the hail's coming. People today have been warned of a coming judgment, but they never believe it will occur. And they didn't react until it was too late. Verse 25. When this hail came down, it came with thunder, it came with fire. It says actually in the verse right before this, fire rained down on the earth. Verse 25, the hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Hail struck down every plant of the field. It broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. You see, God is merciful to those who heed his word, and God is merciful to his own. Israel is separated from Egypt yet again. Verse 31, God is also merciful 
in one more way. The flax and the barley were struck down for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. All vegetation pff, wiped out. But verse 32, don't miss it. The wheat and the emmer were not struck down for they are late in coming up. In other words, church, God did not wipe out all the food in Egypt. That's mercy. That's mercy to all. In fact, in the New Testament, it says, God rains blessings down on the just and the unjust. Every person, if they were to take stock of their lives, would realize they have been blessed by God. You have to be a really thick person to believe that you haven't. And the end of all this is God wants to make sure we realize he didn't wipe out all the food together because he's still being merciful, even to those who don't believe him yet. God's mercy extends in the middle of judgment. God stops short of completely annihilating all of the, the food sources for Egypt to give Pharaoh and the Egyptians another day to repent. Look in verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent, this is the verse that we just read, and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. Why did he do this? Because this plague was so devastating. The Lord is in the right, Pharaoh says. I and my people are in the wrong. Listen, this is more than just admitting fault. This is like more than repentance. This, this is an admission that God is right, and it's an admission I was wrong. Pharaoh has become a, a follower of Jesus, right? Unfortunately, this is not the end. He's, he ticks off every box that we typically put forward and says, okay, if repentance happens, this is what it needs to look like. This is what it needs to look like. You need to admit fault. God is right. You have sinned. You could do all these things good, then you're repentant. But Pharaoh, Pharaoh has entered into another stage of existence where no longer is his heart just hard, but now it's deceiving even himself. Pharaoh believes his own repentance, but Moses doesn't. Look in verse 29. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know, Moses says, that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, Moses says, I know you don't yet fear the Lord God. Church, isn't it enough to admit my faults? Why was Moses picking on Pharaoh? Why didn't he just have a a moment where he had an altar call, he played some music, Pharaoh came forward, I've sinned, I was wrong, God's right, blah, blah, blah. This is the danger of our hearts. Up to now, Pharaoh has been trying to deceive God, but now Pharaoh's heart is deceiving himself. Let me say that one more time. Up to now, Pharaoh has been trying to deceive God. He's been making promises and crossing his fingers and putting them behind his back, but now it's dangerous. Pharaoh is deceiving himself. He thinks he's really repentant. Verse 34, this is how we know he wasn't. You see, repentance can be measured, but unrepentance can be measured as well. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again. He hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh deceived himself into believing he was truly repentant, but his heart was only sorrowful. <laughs> his heart was only broken. 
it wasn't repentant. In fact, I would submit to you that Pharaoh's heart has gone from a hard heart to now a dangerous heart. Hearts are conditioned to operate the way we foster them to operate. The, the heart that you foster is the heart that you get. For Pharaoh, he started with a hard heart. A hard heart is conditioned by pride and obstinance. A hard heart says, I'm not to blame. I'm in the right. I reacted like that because of my circumstances demanded it. It's everyone else's fault. I can't be held responsible. That's everything a hard heart would say. It's, it's, it's focused in pride and being obstinate about matters around you. But I would submit to you that Pharaoh has gone one step further to now where Pharaoh has a dangerous heart. A dangerous heart is conditioned to be deceptive. No longer just conditioned by pride and obstinance, but now it's conditioned to be deceptive. I'll admit what I need to in order to avoid the consequences. I'll change just enough when they change. The most insidious part of this kind of heart is that it exhibits a false humility that seems real. The core motivation of this, though, is self-preservation. This heart doesn't care for the honor of another, but it is completely self-focused. And at its core, a dangerous heart is still operating in a transactional relationship to God. Listen, we, during our sermon prep, we, we were talking with each other and we, and we had to ask the question, do you think Pharaoh thought he was repentant? Do you think he actually meant his moment at repentance? And I have to tell you, church, I think he did. I think he thought he meant it. And this is what makes a dangerous heart so dangerous because we believe the lies it tells us. When David sinned with Bathsheba and killed Bathsheba's husband, you may, may or may not know the story. King David, king over Israel, greatest king ever, king over Israel. He chose to sin and have a relationship with a married woman and kill her husband in the process. Terrible sin. And he lived that way for almost a full year. It wasn't until the prophet Nathan came to him and gave him a little parable and said, David, you are sinning. And David repented. And we have one of the Psalms, which is David's Psalm of repentance. He wrote down these incredible words. And in Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24, we see that David is scared to death that he now has a deceptive heart. He thought he was fine that whole year. But in reality, he was a broken man. And he was unable any longer to look into his own heart and see what was there. It had deceived him to that degree. And so in Psalm 139, he says to God, Search me, O God. Read it with me, church, and know my heart. He says, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Why? Because David could no longer be, be, be trusted to see what was in his own heart. 
it had deceived him that much. And church, you may think that you have repented for a sin and it keeps creeping up and it keeps creeping up. And I would encourage you to walk the road of King David, get on your knees and cry out to God and say, God, I am frankly incapable of seeing what's in my own heart. So God search me and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and show me where I need to change. That will reveal a soft heart. This is the third heart. A soft heart is conditioned by surrender. This is where Pharaoh could not get on his own. This is where David got to after meeting with Nathan and church. This is where we need to get to in order to be the kind of images of God, the kind of images of Jesus Christ, the kind of, the kind of kingdom makers that God wants us to be. We have to operate with hearts that are willing to surrender not demand our own way, not deny something's there, not say it's always somebody else's fault, but a soft heart that is willing to say, God, you look at my heart, show me what's in there, and I'll give it to you. I'll give it up for you. I'll do what you lead me to do. A soft heart simply says, how do I need to change? It accepts whatever consequences may come. It simply says, God, I surrender. Not, not just to the circumstances, but I surrender to whatever you want to do with me. You see, when somebody gets caught for, in, in a sin, sorrow looks a lot like repentance, but it is not the same thing. Sorrow does not equal repentance. Repentance is the idea that I'm going in one direction, the trajectory of my heart and I choose to stop going in that direction to do 180 and to walk in the other direction. Now listen, church, we're, we're tempted to be harsh on Pharaoh, but I believe that Pharaoh thought he had genuine repentance. Pharaoh thought he was saying all the right things. Pharaoh was not, I don't believe Pharaoh was going through the motions. I think he genuinely thought this is what he needed to do but he left out a key ingredient. And repentance without this key ingredient is only sorrow. There was no obvious mo motivation in Pharaoh to fear God. That is the key ingredient that was missing. There's only an, an intention to get out of something, to get the circumstances to change, to get the consequences to stop. Pharaoh is not demonstrating a fear of who God is. He's only demonstrating a fear of what God could do. That's the difference. Verse 20, it's put plainly to us in the text, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, heard his slaves and his livestock, and put them in the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord, left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Those who feared God scrambled for safety. They took God at his word. They didn't want to rush out at the last moment and act in fear. They believed God would do it. And they took precautions. Why? Because they, they feared God. They accepted God's will. And they acted accordingly. This same idea is given by Moses straight to Pharaoh. This thick-skulled Pharaoh. But as for you and your servants, Moses says, I know you miss this key ingredient. You do not yet fear the Lord God. Genuine repentance with a God-fearing heart cries for mercy but accepts the authority that God can do whatever he wants. That's fear of the Lord. Number two, 
True repentance is being confident of who God is. Listen, our decisions to walk in the trajectory of a hard heart will bring consequences. It always will. Go home. Uh, you're already home. Open your Bibles when this is over. Take a, take a project on yourself this week. Read Romans 1 and see the trajectory of a hard heart. Many have to live with the consequences of their rebellion. But a soft heart, a moldable heart, a repentant heart simply says, that's okay. I know God has forgiven me in spite of my consequences. True repentance is confidence knowing who God is. God is not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us, even when we have to live with the consequences afterwards. Listen, we may not follow through 100% of the time. It doesn't mean that our repentance was not genuine. We have to be confident in who God is. This simply means I know my failures simply highlight how deep my sin is. But I'm confident who God is. And he loves me still. You may repent for something 70 times 7. But it will never knock you off the rails because you're confident who God is. Church, he loves you. He has forgiven you. And he will continue to forgive you 70 times 7. Finally, my cause, this, this repentance, if it's done in the wrong way, may cause me to feel like God is distant from me. Don't believe it. Be confident in who God is. Know that even though you fail, God will never forsake because he never forsakes his own. Repentance is a daily thing. First John 1, 9, if we ask forgiveness for our sins, he is faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance is a daily thing. Forgiveness is an eternal thing. Perfect people don't go to heaven. Only forgiven people go to heaven. Never forget that God has put all of your sins, past, present, and future, on his son on the cross 2,000 years ago. The Israelites were not perfect people. <laughs> they certainly weren't, but they were God's people. And like we preached last week, like we talked about last week, if you're God's people, he has you as his own. He cares for you and he will never leave you. No, many no matter how many times you drop the ball or need to ask for repentance. Brings up an interesting question we were talking about in our sermon prep time. What if a drunk turns and follows Jesus Christ and he gives up this drinking, this sin that has put his heart on a trajectory, he gives it up, but he has a hard time with it and he falls. And let's say he gets drunk and dies. Does God leave him? Absolutely not. You see, because they are still a forgiven sinner. Repentance is not a measure of my heart. Repentance is a measure of my heart. It is not a measure of my standing with God. If I am driven to repentance on a regular basis, it is simply a measure that my heart belongs to God. If I am not, there's something wrong with my heart. But this has nothing to do with my standing before God. When I decide to follow Jesus, I am forgiven. Nothing changes that. When I fail in my life to please him, I can be repentant, turn, and walk in the other direction. That keeps my heart in check. My overarching desire is simply this, 
surrender to God every part of my life. Why? Because I fear him and he has that authority to tell me what to do. And I believe his will is better than my own. But Craig, if my heart is so deceitful, how do I gauge it? Last one in the so what's. True repentance, real repentance, genuine repentance bears long lasting fruit. When there is a respite from my consequences, it is the fruit that comes from that moment that determines if I've been genuinely repentant. You see, Pharaoh got a respite. He got a break. The hail stopped, the fire stopped, the thunder stopped, and his heart kept going in the same rebellious trajectory. But if we have soft hearts and we turn, like Pharaoh seemed to have turned, the fruit is we keep walking in the direction in which we turn. Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, in repentance, we're so scared we're going to lose so much. Our standing with our neighbors, our standing with our, with our relatives, our standing in our own homes. We're going we're gonna to lose what we have treasured for far too long. But repentance simply means choosing to stop the trajectory of loving that thing and begin loving, being on the right plane with God, in the right condition, in the right relationship with God more than anything else. Pharaoh was fostering a hard heart. Pharaoh was not fostering a heart, genuinely looking for God's actions to change it. So church, what, what heart are you fostering? This is what it comes down to. What kind of a heart are you fostering? Because man looks on the outward appearance and you may think that you're fooling everybody, but God looks on the heart. So I'd encourage you, church, foster a heart that is soft to God, that gives God his authority, that believes what he says in his word and acts on those things as if they're true, that builds a life based on what God says, like the wise man who builds his house on a rock. Foster a heart of repentance. The hard heart will convince us it's getting everything it wants. And in the process, it kills us. And church, I'm here to tell you that a soft heart, a heart that wants what Jesus wants more than what we want, is a heart that pleases God, is a repentant heart. It's a heart where God can mold and change. It's not a heart that's perfect by any means, but it's a heart that wants to be right with God. So church, is it, admit, is it enough to admit my faults? No. We must turn and give our lives to Jesus. And we must want what he wants more than what we want. Second Father, may you take this message that we have dove into this morning together and we've, we've explored, we have, we have seen this plague of hail and we've seen Pharaoh seeming to change, but not really because he missed that one key ingredient, he did not fear you. So Father, help us to live our lives in such a way that we fear you, not fear you like we're scared of you,
but fear you like we are reverently giving you the authority in our lives to do what you want to do, to take us where you want us to take us, and to help us to live wherever we are with a power greater than we could know. I'm grateful, Lord, that you reach down and save some of us, and I'm grateful that we can give you glory in our lives voluntarily by living with the soft heart. So, Father, help our church to stand up during this time. Help us to be the kind of church you need us to be. And help us to live for you with soft, repentant hearts, just waiting to see how you can use us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.